0: Uh, I'm Kots. I'm one of the pastors here. We are so glad you are here, and uh, we are in the last stretch of the Book of Acts. We've been going through Luke and Acts for about five plus years, and uh, today we are—I think there's this week and the next week, and I think that's it. We're finally done with everything that Luke wrote, <laughs> and I'm excited about it. and You guys are like finally, but I'm excited about it. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, Last week, thank you so much for allowing us to call an audible and just have a time to grieve. For a lot of us, I would imagine you had no idea what was happening because some of us here, we don't have really a con- have a connection to, the, to our sister churches. But for those of us who do, we really needed that time to really explore um, what we're supposed to do with the information we received. Because for a lot of us, it felt like a type of death, right? And I think for, um, for those of you who aren't connected to our sister churches, um, you probably could relate to the feeling of, of loss. Um, maybe in recent years, you have lost something very valuable to you. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe there was a breakup, maybe it was a divorce, uh, maybe it was, I don't know, maybe you had a reputation and then there was a death of that reputation. Maybe you had a trust with somebody and that trust was lost, there was a death. So the question I wanna start with today is what death have you experienced lately? Maybe it's a physical death. Maybe you lost somebody in your life. You know, maybe it's a job. You know, with the economy right now, we hear stories about layoffs, and you're like, that's a death in my life right now. Maybe it's health. Maybe there's something that, you know, you're living your life without really thinking much about it until you, the doctor gave you a diagnosis that said, oh, my goodness, I never even thought about that, and now I have to deal with it for the rest of my life. Maybe there's a death in that category of your life. And the question is, not only is there a death in your life, is what do you do with that? And not only what do you do with that, what does God do with the deaths in our lives, right? And so, you know, this seems to be perfect to the situation we're we're in right now because we talked about it last week. But it just so happened, and I planned this months in advance, so I had no idea that the Anaheim thing was going to happen. But it just so happens that we are talking about that very topic today. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 27, verse 27, through chapter 28, verse 10. And for those of you who have not joined us in the past few weeks, I'll give you a quick recap. There's a guy named Paul, and he is one of the first Christian leaders of the Christian movement. And his goal, okay, his goal was to take the people who are outside of his understanding of Judaism, right? And go outside to them and say, hey, we want you to join us. Yeah, we were really hyper-exclusive before, but now we wanna open up the doors Come come and join us. And so he travels around the world telling people about, you know, how Jesus died on the cross. And because of that, the doors have swung open for everybody to join. And a lot of people hopped on that bandwagon. They're like, yeah, we want to be a part of this. We want to know more about this God, Yahweh. We want to know more about him. And so as they were coming to Jerusalem, it turns out that the people who are on the inside were like, "Uh uh-uh, no, no, we don't want people from the outside. And for that reason, Paul was persecuted Paul, like a lot of people are like, you don't allow people like that into our holy temple. You don't allow people with that kind of background, that kind of baggage into our movement, right? So there was a lot of pushback to a point where he stood trial, unfair trials. He was um, put in prison, and he was in prison for a very long time. And eventually, he realized that he was not going to get it for a fair trial. So he said, I want to go to the highest, score, uh, uh, highest court of the day, and that is gonna to be to Caesar, which is in Rome. Okay, so he's on that ship ride right now, and let's look at the map, the Indiana Jones map, and they somehow end up here. Like in the Gilligan's Island, the weather started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed. If it wasn't for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. And for the younger people, everybody who's and older are like, yes! But everybody else is like, huh? Okay. Now, they were so desperate to survive that they started tossing their cargo overboard, right? And there were people in there who were doing, like, everything they can to survive. They're rationing their food, you know, they were doing everything. They were encouraging each other. They are holding on to each other. At one point, um, in the book of Acts, they record for us that because they were afraid that the ship was going to fall apart, like, the sailors grabbed rope and they tied the ship together, which I have no idea how they did that. Right, like, did they take rope on both sides and jump over and then come up? I don't know how they did it, but they did it. And so they were desperate to survive. And at one point, they couldn't see the stars or the moon in the sky, and they're like, "I think all hope is lost. There's so much fog around us, mist. Uh, we have, you know, the ship is going left and right. We don't even know which side is up. What do we do? What do we do?" And then Paul stands up and gives this amazing speech about how he received a vision from God. And in this vision, he said, "We're all going to be fine, guys. Just, just hold on to hope. We're going to be fine." And so there's a sense of unity that happened on this boat okay and this is where we pick up the story today from chapter 27 verse 27 on the 14th night so they've been out there for two weeks now we were still being driven across the adriatic sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land remember they have no idea where they are there's there's no way to know because there's no stars or moon you can't find, you can't figure out where you are you see no landscapes around you all you see is a thick mist but these sailors, they have that other sense, right? Like, we've been sailing our, all our lives. We kind of get it. Like, so they're like, I get this weird sense that like, we're actually coming close to shore. So what do they do? Next verse. They took surround, uh, soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. They dropped a, like a rope with a weight on the end to find out how deep it is. 120 feet. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. So the, the seafloor is getting shallower and shallower. So they're like, oh. We're getting close, we're getting close. So, fearing, next verse here, we fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. So it was dark, they can't see where they are. They're like, we, all we know is that we might be coming close to shore, so let's, let's drop our anchors and let's just sit tight until tomorrow morning. Hopefully the mist will be gone by then. Okay, I'm trying to, Luke, the writer of this, is trying to give you this idea of the, 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 the scene that they're in. They're trying to invite you into this story. Now, what they ha- the reason why they have to drop the anchors at this point is because they want to protect the bottom of the, of the boat, of the ship. By the way, I don't understand boat terminologies. What, is there a special word for that, the bottom? Hole. The moat? Hull. 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 H-A-U-L? H-U-L. Oh, H-U-L. Okay, so the hull. See, I don't know these words. Okay. And then, okay, so they do that, and then they're like, let's just sit tight and see what happens. And as the sailors are dropping the anchors and making sure that their, their ship is safe, that the hull is safe, I hope I used it right, okay, something weird happens here. Sailors, like their instinct kind of kicks in, and this is what happens next. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboats down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the boat. bow, 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 bow. <laughs> right? It's bow, right? Okay, thank you what was the, okay, yeah, so, okay, so these guys are, okay, as sailors, when the ship is starting to sink, their instinct is to jump on a lifeboat and get themselves to safety, right, so their instincts kick in, and this is part of their training, but when Paul sees that these guys are trying to escape the boat while everybody else is stuck on it, this is what Paul says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And for those of you who grew up in Christian vocabulary, you're like, saved, oh, go to heaven. No, no. This has nothing about, this is just saved, like being rescued, sparing your lives. This is what they're talking about here, okay? And basically what Paul is saying is, the past few days, this last 14 days, we worked together as a unit. We were one. And because we stuck as one, we made it this far right? And if you guys want to escape, well, if you do, we're all going to die. So please stay here on the ship. So the soldiers, this is what their response was. So the soldiers cut the rope and held the lifeboats, up, that held the lifeboats and let it drift away. As the sailors watched their little ships go away, their little boats go away, they're like, oh, there goes our hope for survival, right? To Paul, unity was that important, that everybody was in it together. That was, it was that important. Then just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. Like, guys, you have not been eating. So if you want to be saved, you make sure you eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Like tomorrow morning, it's gonna be, we're going to be doing a lot of things because we're going to survive together. Make sure you eat a meal. So he says, now I urge you to take some food. You need, to, you need it to survive. <coughs> not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. If you wanna survive, make sure you eat, make sure you stay together. Now, what they're gonna do next is that they're going to partake in a meal together. It's a regular meal. It's like eating sandwiches. This is like nothing special. But the way that Luke describes this meal, it might, like if you have a dashboard full of sensors, some of those sensors might start going off because some of the words that Luke uses to describe the next scene might remind you of something. After he said this, he took some bread give thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. What does that remind you of? Hmm? The Last Supper, yes! Right, this is not the Last Supper. There's no mention of wine here in this story, although I think they would have been really happy if they had some wine. But there's no wine involved in this, right? This is not religious. This is just them eating a meal. But the way that Luke describes this meal it's supposed to make you say, hmm, that sounds like the Eucharist. That sounds like communion. That sounds like the Last Supper. What's going on here? Luke is using these words to conjure up these memories from the book of Luke, his first volume, right? He's trying to remind you of something. Why? Because he's trying to demonstrate to us that community, commonness, oneness is important in this part of the story. They're eating together. They're, you know, and, and how do they respond to this? Next verse. They were all encouraged, all, not just a few, all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. All of them? Yeah. How many of them? Well, all together, there were 276 of us on board. So it meant something to them. They weren't just eating. They were eating together, and together, they were being blessed. They were being encouraged. Something good was happening there, right? And then when they ate, they are like, this. do some other things. When they ate as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grains into the sea this is a cargo ship so they're taking all the grain they're tossing it over and the reason they're doing that is because as they get closer to shore the hull would, would, would scrape against the, the if there's rocky if there's rocks underneath it would it would break the ship the hull of the ship right so they have to lighten the boat as much as they can so that it floats a little higher i'm sure there's a word for that too but i don't know what it is okay not a boat guy okay next one next verse when daylight came they did not recognize the land so they're like oh land ho but where are we we don't know but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could so like it's not rocky in the ground it's actually just sand maybe we could go closer we could go closer so what they do is they take a knife or a sword or wherever they had they cut the ropes of the anchor right and they also had um um a rudder, and they cut the rope for that, too. And, and, you know, and then after that, they put up their sail and let the wind blow them on, on into, the, into the shore, hoping that you know, the ship will stay together. But as it turns out, as it gets closer and closer to shore, the, what's the front called? The bow. The bow hits the sandbar, and because the waves are still coming in from the back, the back, which is called the stern, the stern breaks. Okay, thank you, Participation point so you guys get it okay right and so now their boat is starting to is starting to sink and they don't have no lifeboats like, what do we do what do we do everyone's like let's start swimming let's go now the next scene is really interesting okay because the next thing that happens you're like i didn't expect this to happen this is what happens the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping now this is interesting Because up until now, there was this oneness, this community. They were like calling each other brother, right? Because they were like, hey, we survived together. We encouraged each other. The prisoners here gave us hope, right? They're all together. And all of a sudden, one of those guys is like, wait a minute, I'm a soldier. And as a Roman soldier, if any of my guys that I'm supposed to be responsible for escapes, then whatever was coming upon them is now coming upon me. So if that prisoner was meant to be killed, that means I'm going to be killed. And out of panic, he's like, shwing, we're gonna kill these guys before they swim away. And it makes sense. I mean, they're looking out for themselves, right? But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. So it's like, no, no, we're not here to take away lives, we're here to save lives. So the centurion says, put your swords away, swim if you can't, if you don't know how to swim, grab onto a plank, that's the next verse. He says, the rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. So if you know how to swim, go to somebody who's on the plank and help them come, come to the shore. In this way, everyone, every single one of them, right, over 200 people, every single one of them reached the land safely. Wow. What a rescue story, right? Now, once they were safe, safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Okay crazy drama that was just happening. This is like an action scene of a very long story with a lot of dialogue. Okay, but this is the action scene. If this is a movie, this is where you put all your budget in, right? But I just want to demonstrate for you guys what's happening here, because Luke is trying to make a very interesting point here. So here's a little illustration. So there's four types of people on this ship, right? We have the prisoner, that's Paul, and whoever he was with, those were the prisoners. We, we have a soldier, right? And we have sailors, and we have a commander or the centurion. We know his name. His name is Julius. We only have two names out of all four types. Okay. When the weather started getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed, if it wasn't for the, you know, that part. Okay. There's a lot of bad weather. This boat is sinking. All these bad things. The people are losing hope. People can't find the stars or moon, so they were like, all lost is hope. All our gods have failed us because we usually look to the stars to, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, Different background, different religious background. The prisoners were Jews, and everybody else were Romans. Um, At one point, they had to tie the ship together with rope. Uh, 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 At one point, they were all praying together. They were encouraging each other. And so at this point in the story, when the ship was falling apart, something interesting happened. This thing called the Brotherhood started forming. All of a sudden, these titles didn't matter anymore. Instead, they recognized each other as, next slide, as human beings. Like their titles were stripped away from them. Like, you're a soldier, you're a centurion, you're a sailor, you're a prisoner. These titles meant nothing to them while they were in the midst of that that storm. They didn't care anymore. Their statuses were ripped away. Like you, you can say, hey, I'm a CEO. It's like, I don't care. We're about to die, right? Like I have a PhD after my name. We don't care, right? So all your titles are stripped away and they only saw each other as human beings. Human beings that were there to support each other, care for each other, encourage one another. Whether if you got the most popular kid in high school award, it doesn't matter in this story anymore, right? In this story, all that matters is that you're there for each other. But as they started seeing that the crazy waters were starting to calm down, right, and once the sailors started noticing that they were coming closer to shore, one person remembered that he was a sailor. And all of a sudden, his instincts as a sailor started kicking in. So like, oh, we're going to secretly escape this ship and make it back to shore. And then the centurion's like, no, you guys are, next slide, human beings. Stop trying to separate yourself from the group because when you do, you you aren't you start playing your role again. Remember that before you have your role of a sailor, you are a human being. And then once the ship breaks, but they know that, that you know, it starts to sink, all of a sudden, the soldier remembered who he was. Oh yeah, that's right, I'm a Roman soldier, and my role is to kill the prisoner before they swim away. Centurion says, no, remember, before you're a soldier, you're a human being. We are all part of the same group right now. You are building up yourself because of the label that you have, because of the title you have, because of the training you have, whatever it might be, right? Because of that, you think that you're different from everybody else and you start playing out your role that are artificial. And now, they end up on the shores of Malta. And when they show, (laughs) and you'll be surprised the way that Luke tells this story because he's trying to make a point that even when they end up on this island of Malta, At this point, these people are like, no, we are human beings. We are brothers. We are one. We're going to work together. They come across a bunch of islanders. Now, look at the way that this story unfolds when he meets these islanders. The islanders at Malta showed us unusual kindness. Like, you barely know us, but you're caring for us. I wonder why. He'll reveal this in two verses, why they were so kind to him. They built a fire and welcomed us, all because it was raining and cold, like Los Angeles for the last three weeks, right? It's like... Why are you so kind to us? Well, of course, it's raining and, you know, it's cold. We're here to keep you warm. Like, no, there has to be a string attached to this. Why are you so nice to us? We're going to find out why they were so nice to them. So Paul is like, let me help out. So Paul gathers a pile of brushwood and he put it in the fire. And as he was doing this, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself onto his hand, meaning it jumped out of the fire and bit Paul on the hand, which is not a good sign. Okay, next verse. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. How did you get that from this? How how do you? I don't get it. Why why do you think I'm a murderer? Because I'm being murdered right now by the snake. And you think, okay, sure. Why? Here's the reason. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. Now, you need some context for this. and I'll give it to you in a few seconds. Okay, next verse. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire. Ugh, snake, ugh, back into the fire. And no, with no ill effect, he's like, <sighs> I'm good, right? And they're like, no, 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 it bit you. Let's just watch to see what happens to you. Next verse. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Like, wait, he went from murderer to god? What just happened? Like, there must be some kind of Cultural context are that I'm missing. And yes, you are right. Here is a theologian historian. This is what he said about this, this scene right here. It was common belief of the time that the sea was a place where the gods could exact vengeance, okay? And in this case, the name of the goddess is Dike, D-I-K-E, the next part of the quote here. And the snake bite was likely perceived as Dike pursuing Paul after surviving the shipwreck. Okay, let me explain this to you guys. This is really interesting. Back in those days, people looked at the ocean as an unpredictable place for chaos to happen. So let's just say you're a murderer and you're standing trial, but you're so good at telling your story and you're so good at lying that they say, "No, you're not guilty." But the family that was affected by it is like, oh, "I can't believe he went free. We know he was the murderer. He killed our favorite person, whatever it was, right? I can't believe he got let off free." And now that person goes on a boat and goes into the ship. But they're like, I know that the gods and goddesses of the sea are not, they know the truth, and if this person is guilty, really guilty, the ocean will tell us if by swallowing that person up, we're going to know if this person is really guilty by looking at how the gods and goddesses of the sea take care of this person. That's how they used to think back then. So as these people who just were in a shipwreck come out of the sea and every single person came out safely, okay, people on the island were like, these people must be good people, right? So these people come out. And they're like, these are good people. This is why they showed no hospitality. Like, well, we know that the goddess DK allowed them to survive, so they must be good people. That's, that's why they were treated with respect and, you know, care. But as soon as a viper climbed onto Paul's hand, and, right, and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe they were able to somehow swerve their way out of the judgment of DK. but the, the, the serpent it's going to finish off what it, you know, nature intended to do in the first place. So when they grabbed onto Paul's hand, they're like, oh, no, no, he's not a good person. No, these people, they're murderers, right? So do you see how their mind is working here? Their culture is telling them that if they survive the ocean, they're good people, but no, nature is still after them, so therefore they're actually murderers. They're really bad people. And then they waited to see if Paul would fall dead, right? Like maybe he's going to swell up, something's going to happen, and nothing happened to them. So they're like, okay, maybe you're not murderers. Maybe you guys are gods, (laughs) Do you see how their mind works? Now, if you read this story and just in its own thing without considering the rest of the book of Acts, you would think this is a really strange story. Like, why would Luke put this in the story, right? But if you would read the entire book of Acts, what you're going to discover is this, because before this leg of the journey, Paul, he was categorized by his race Ethnicity, beliefs, citizenship, and politics. Paul would say something like, hey, I'm a Jew. And then the people will be like, oh, you're a Jew, right? Or, hey, you know, I, I believe that, that all people have access to God. And they're like, oh, you do? And the, Paul would be labeled and categorized and even persecuted just for the beliefs that he had. He'd say, I'm a Roman citizen, and he'll be treated differently for being a Roman citizen, Right? I believe this about politics, and for that reason, they, he would be treated another way. Like, right? This is his story all the way up to the day that he was in prison and got on the ship. But after the shipwreck, now Paul is being categorized by his life circumstances. Oh, you survived the storm? Oh, you must be good people. Oh, there's a snake that bit you? Oh, you must be a murderer. Oh, you, you survived the snake bite? You must be gods, right? <laughs> like, right? This is just a very more primitive way of looking at it, but the same thing is happening throughout the book of Acts. <laughs> like, just imagine being labeled by other people and being treated differently for that. Huh. I can't imagine what that world would look like, right? But what we learn from the book of Luke and what we, and what we learn from the book of Acts is this main idea here is this, this that labeling is a deeply ingrained aspect of, of human nature. It's just how we make sense of the world around us. We look at somebody and say, oh, look at that person. Look at that person's skin color. That person must be like this. Oh, look at the person that person voted for. That person must be like this, right? We start making, look at the pr- way that they talk about women. Look at the way they talk about their privilege. Look at the, right? Depending on how we express ourselves or you know, where, where they find us or you know, how we look or look at the way they dress, or the, we get labeled right away. And because of that, and by the way, this is very common. This is a human thing. We all do this, right? But Paul, he's been transformed by Christ. He just went through this crazy journey, and he learned something. Remember, Paul, when we first meet Paul in the pages of the book of, in the book of Acts, we find out that he's just like these guys. Oh, you follow Jesus. You're a heretic. You deserve to die. And he was out there hunting Christians and killing them. And over the years, he started changing his mind. So what does Paul do next? Because what he does here is the exact opposite of what these people do. And it's easy to miss it if you don't look at the details. Next verse. So on this island of Malta, there was an estate nearby belonging to a guy named Publius, or Publius, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us in his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days because people thought Paul was a god, right? Next verse. His father was sick, Publius' dad was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Not sure what that is, but I know in Oregon Trail, I died many times because of this. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. Paul healed somebody that he barely knew. Now, if you look at the details of this verse I just read right here, he went in. As a Jew, he was not allowed to go into a house of somebody who was a Gentile. Right? He put his hands on him. He's making physical contact with somebody he's not supposed to. And he heals them. Right? Like Paul is looking past the labels, looking past the stereotypes, looking past the cultural restrictions, and he's carrying another human being. Then next verse. Word gets out, right? When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came, and they were all cured. Regardless of who they were, Paul cured everybody. Now, from here, I just want to kind of get theological for the next few minutes, okay? Um, as you guys know, and you probably heard me say this a lot, the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke he has a first volume called the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, right? So there's Luke and Acts, and when he wrote the two volumes, it was meant to be read together. I know it took us five years to get this far, but it was meant to be in one setting. You're supposed to be reading both together, and as you're reading both together, at this point in the story of Acts, you're supposed to be reminded of stuff that happened in the book, in the first volume, which is the story of Jesus. So as Paul is healing people and allowing people who are not like him into his circle, you're reminded of the story of Jesus, that he allowed people who are not like him into his circle, that he healed people regardless of their background. You're reminded that Jesus reached out to people who were outcasts. Jesus reached out to adulterers. Jesus ca- reached out to tax collectors who were shunned in society. Jesus called out, reached out to Samaritans, which people didn't want to associate themselves with Samaritans, but he did it anyways, right? Jesus even showed grace to betrayers. Jesus was all-inclusive. And here we see paul doing the same thing so you're supposed to see the both worlds coming together saying like oh my goodness paul is becoming more and more in line with the way that jesus served and loved the people around him from the first time we met paul until now you'll see that at first he was far far away and he's becoming more and more in line with what jesus was in the book of luke now uh the story ends or today we're talking about you know this is where we're ending our story They honed us in many ways, uh, honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed, and they took off. Now, what point is Luke trying to make for us at this point in the story? What he's telling us is this, that Christians are expected to see beyond categories and labels. I'm not saying that you can't have categories and labels. It helps us make sense of the world. But when it comes to people, whether if you choose to allow somebody into your circle or not. You should see beyond their categories and labels, why? Like I said, Luke expects us to read Luke and Acts together. So as you see what Paul is doing, you're reminded of what Jesus did, right? So why are we supposed to do this way? Because Jesus sees beyond categories and labels. If we call ourselves Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, and you're saying that I am dedicating my life to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, this is an expectation that we are supposed to see beyond categories and labels and treat people in the way that Jesus treated other people. Now, I, So one of my favorite uh, theologians, N.T. Wright, he was reflecting on this story of the shipwreck and all that kind of stuff, right? And as he was doing this, he was like, you know what's really interesting about this story? This is what he said. He said, through the, uh, through the waters to safety, He's talking about this category of stories. He's like, have you noticed that the story of, like, dangerous waters to a place where you're safe, like, where ocean represents chaos and, and, and death, eventually you end up in a place of safety? Like, have you noticed this pattern other places in the Bible? He's like, because I do. Like, look at these stories. He says, well, that's like Noah's story, right? That's Noah was in waters. That was, you know, death, right? And they came to life. The Exodus story, Moses went underwater, under, well, through the Red Sea, right? He was being chased by chariots and the Egyptians, and he came out the other side, and a new life began over there. And he talks about the story of John the Baptist when he baptized Jesus. Baptism is a symbol of death and new life. Um, The Jesus story, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection, he's like, this story happens all over the place in the Bible. And he also says, this is also Paul's story. We just read this right now. And then at the end, he says, this repeated theme that we see throughout the Bible, this is also our story, he says, we've all experienced death of some kind, right? And through Jesus, he's able to take us from that, the pile of ashes and make something beautiful out of it, right? Each death in our lives is God's opportunity to birth a new humanity. When they're on the ship and everything started falling apart, they said, this is it. We lost hope. This is our death. But out of that chaos... God was able to stitch together a new humanity where labels didn't matter anymore. It's only when they were reminded of their old creation, which is, oh wait a minute, I'm a sailor, let me see if I can escape and save my own life, they said, no, 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 don't let that old way of you creep back in, right? You are a new creation, you are a new humanity, you love each other regardless of labels. And then as the ship is starting to sink, they're like, the soldier's like, oh yeah, that's right. In the old creation, I was a Roman soldier, shink! It's like, no, don't do it. Remember, you are part of the human race. Everybody here has an image of God. You are not allowed to kill anybody. The old creation creeps in to the new creation, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not supposed to be like that anymore. I have made a decision to live according to the new humanity rules, which is to love all people as Christ has loved me. So here, right, and then they show up on the shore and they're like, yeah, we're here. Like these people that they just came across on this island, they don't understand the new creation. They see the world in terms of labels. Oh, you must be good people. Oh, no, you must be murderers. Oh, no, wait, you guys must be gods, right? Like they're, that's the only way they see the world. If you call yourselves a Christian, if you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, you have experienced death in your life. When you follow Jesus, it's basically your way of saying, I'm putting my old self to death, and from that, I'm bringing a new life, a new creation, a life that Jesus has given me. And it's not a one-time deal, right? A lot of people, even after you become a Christian, before you become a Christian, everybody here has experienced some type of death in their life. So, let's go back to the first question. What kind of death, what death have you experienced lately? For those of you who are really closely tied to the Anaheim community, that's a type of death. Maybe it's another community you're a part of and you're no longer allowed to go in that group or maybe that group has disbanded. That's another type of death in your life. Or maybe it's a death of a pride. Maybe somebody shamed you and all of a sudden you feel like the pride that you had is now crumbling away. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a relationship within your own family Maybe it's a bad breakup, maybe it's a good breakup, you know, when somebody gets married and goes away. It's a good thing, but it's also a type of saying, you know, it's like saying goodbye. It's a death of an era to your life, right? Your kids go off to college, are like, that's a death. My little boy is now like a grown man, right? Like, that's a type of death. Maybe you were let go from your job, or maybe you were demoted, or maybe you were promoted. I don't know. It's a type of death. Maybe your reputation just suffered a type of death of your health. But what we read over and over in the scriptures is that when there is a death, that is God's opportunity to bring new life. So in following this question, what death have you experienced lately, the follow-up question is what new life is God trying to create in you? What new life is God creating in you? He's trying to create something better. I'm not saying that God is the one that caused the death. But God has this way of taking ashes and making something beautiful out of it. Now, for some of you, you've experienced that type of death a long time ago, and you're still waiting for God to breathe new life into it. Like, yeah, I I suffered a relational death a few years ago, and I'm still waiting for Jesus to give me new life in that area. Where is God in all that? Maybe it's a type of breach of trust, or maybe it's a matter of justice. Somebody has wronged me, and I have not received justice. That death still hurts even today, and I don't see God breathing new life into it. Where is God in all that? And honestly, I don't know. God works in his own ways, and I'm not God. I don't know. But what I thought would be good for us to do today is that if we spend a few minutes in prayer, as we process through this, Maybe even cry out to God, like, God, please bring new life into my life right now because I need it. And for us to do that right now, I thought it would be fitting if Pastor Stan came up and led us in that, that uh, prayer. So Pastor Stan. And um, <laughs> I asked him this morning, actually. Last night as I was going over this sermon with my wife, we were like, yeah, we should ask Dad. Yeah, let's do that. You know? so, and I asked him this morning, and he's like, well, you know, whenever I pray with people, it's mostly for this very reason. Um, that people are just asking for new life in the places they feel have died. So Pastor Sand, just grab any mic you can find.
1: Thanks. Uh, I just wanted to share something that I share with people, and that's that the uh, Bible is full of a process called orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, and that's where God starts with something that we know and then breaks it all up. And so the orientation is something we are are familiar with, and then God allows it to be broken up, and that's the disorientation, because all of a sudden everything we thought we knew, we, we find we really didn't know, or it feels like we didn't know it. And then the the temptation is to try to take our disorientation and go back to reorientation. So we so we try to go backwards and put things back together the way they used to be. And actually God's invitation, as as Pastor Cott said, is a reorientation, which is taking what has existed before and putting it back together. It's like the the sermon series, Do Over, where we talked about kintsugi and putting things back together in a different way. And so as long as we struggle with trying to put things that are broken back into the way they were, I think we're gonna get stuck there because what's broken is broken. And we can't change what happened, but we can be able to have a reorientation to have it put back together in a new way. And that's what God offers. And and just like Kintsugi uh, indicated, what is created actually has a beauty that is greater than the original. And that's, uh, as Pastor Kott says, that's hard to accept. And I don't know as I fully accept it. A lot of times I struggle with it. But I, what I found is that kind of what Pastor Kotz was talking about, categories and, and roles. I can put God into a category and a role that everything he does, I need to make have perfect understanding in how that all works together. And God is not, cannot be put in a cage just like a person can't be put in a cage, that there is a, there is a person to interact with And that's what prayer is about. So I'm gonna invite the worship to come forward and I'll be praying. Uh, And what I would invite you to do is this. If you think that there is an answer to your hurt, I would invite you to say to God, God give me the answer. But if you kind of feel like your hurt is not no words are going to be able to take away your hurt no uh concept or no argument or no framework is ever going to make you be able to see what you feel and put it into into that kind of thing i would invite you to 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 let god just be with you in that place because He doesn't need to be understood. He just needs to be connected with. And when we're connecting with him, he doesn't always provide understanding in in a logical sense, but he always provides a presence. And that presence says that you are loved and I'm not going to leave you. And that you can count on no matter what happens. So why don't we pray? Father, I thank you that I don't have to defend you, that wherever each person is, that you don't ask to be defended, you just ask to be experienced. So I pray, Lord, for each person here, and and for myself, that we might be able just to allow you to be God, allow you to be the person that you are. And even though we don't understand it, we don't know, we don't, uh, can't explain it, can't put words to it, can't even put pictures to it, because you are so beyond any of those categories. But there is a category, or there is a place, that we can experience you. And that's right here and right now, because that's where you are. You're right where we are and you will never leave that place. There's no place we can go that we will not find you there. So, Lord, I ask that you would just be speaking words or flowing experiences or however you want to communicate to us that we are so special to you, that we are uniquely made, and that you want us to know that, your fut- that the future we have with you is one of wholeness and healing, and not one that we feel like we missed out and missed it. So thank you, Lord, for being a God who is almighty, all-powerful, but intimate and close. Thank you, God, for being the powerful God, the creative God, and the beautiful God. In your name we pray, amen.